Well, like I said, today we begin Lent, the lengthening of days as we move from winter to spring. Spring blooms in late March, early April in Jerusalem. Easter. You can see how we miss out, but in the northern hemisphere, out of the cold darkness of winter, we move to this spring. And for first century Palestinians, the last month of winter is the hardest because there's hardly any fresh food and your winter stores are running low. And so, of course, you're having to conserve and fast and stretch it out just in case the spring rains take longer than expected. You deny yourself. You enter into this Lent season. You look forward to something good because the days are getting longer. You know it's coming. New life, fresh fruit, abundance. Hope is coming, but it's going to be hard first. Hope is coming, but it's going to be hard first. And we turn to the cross. Hope is coming, but it's going to be hard first. And that's why some enter into this season of hardness by giving things up. Lent, so that the abundance, the good news is so much sweeter when it comes. So for our Lent journey, we're going to go and journey with Jesus to the cross. And today we head back to the beginning. We go back to the day that Jesus revealed his purpose. In Luke's account so far, this is Luke 4, Jesus has been baptized. He's gone out to the desert to be tempted, but he hasn't yet called his disciples. And so far, Luke hasn't told us about any miracles. There's a bit of a rumor there, but we haven't seen any in Luke's gospel. And so Jesus is this 30-year-old impressive young man. Think Fritz. Think Fritz. I talked to Fritz about that this during the week, and he he liked the comparison and said I could use it. Um, if you don't know who Fritz is, he's our thirty-year-old um, youth worker who's just left. Anyway, from reading our reading, we know that Jesus had this impressive reputation. People were talking about him. Uh, in glowing terms. He was getting invited to speak everywhere in all these synagogues and everyone raved about him. Think Fritz. Now, remember at this stage, Jesus isn't the Christ. Jesus is just Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph the carpenter's son. And he's asked to preach in his home synagogue, in his home church. And he got up to preach, and as was the custom then, he read from the scripture first. And so someone gave him the scroll of Isaiah, and he had to scroll through to find the reading he wanted. And it's Isaiah 61. So that would have taken a long time to scroll. It's not like an iPad or flicking through your Bible. And so you can imagine the anticipation that's building. Man, we've got this guest speaker. Everyone's talking about him. He's scrolling to a passage he wants to preach on. This is going to be great. This is going to be an excellent sermon. 
And so he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the audience would have been thinking, hey, this is one of those readings about the Messiah. This is going to be good. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Man, we need some freedom. And recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed. This is going to be a great sermon because Rome's got us under their thumb to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he hands it to the attendant. And back then they used to sit down to preach. And it says every eye was fastened, buttoned, we say glued to him. If you've ever had to preach or teach or deliver a message, that is the sort of audience and congregation you want. People sitting on the edge of their seat. Can't wait to hear what you're saying. Yeah, I like that. Someone moved. Sitting on the edge of their feet. Can't wait to hear what you're saying. Ready to laugh. Ready to cry. Just open. Ready to soak it up. And I tell you, it makes preaching easier when you have a crowd like that. And it makes what you say so much better when you have a crowd like that. So I think we really do need to get into that sort of spirit, people, a bit more often rather than the... Oh, yeah, I know it's not everyone's thing, but I don't know, maybe a bit of preach it, brother. brother. You know, amen. Amen. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. And then Jesus doesn't need half an hour. He doesn't need three minutes. He doesn't need one minute. In one sentence, he wows them and he woes them. Read the sentence with me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Jews, they had a long history. They'd been slaves in Egypt, but then they'd been set free to be their own people in Israel. But then they'd been taken into captivity in Babylon. Only to to be redeemed and restored into their homeland. But that restoration was never as good as the first time when David was king. It had never been as good. But they had this promise. Now under Greek and then Roman rule, they were a shadow of their former selves. But they had this promise, like these ones in Isaiah 60-61. A king, an anointed one, because King David was anointed by Solomon, would arise. Messiah, it means anointed one. He would come and restore their fortunes. He would come and set them free. And every year, as they went to Jerusalem to the Passover, they used to say to one another, is this going to be the year? Is this going to be the year When the promised one comes, is this going to be the year when Isaiah 60, Isaiah 61 are fulfilled? The glory of Zion, the year of the Lord's favor. Is this going to be the year of Messiah and Christ? And here is Jesus saying, not this is the year, but today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. And you can see in what happens next, the confusion, the, the, uh, um, I don't know, their reaction as it dawns on them what he's saying. We didn't read this, but it said, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming from his lips. But hang on a sec. Isn't this Joseph's son? They said. And Jesus starts quoting other scriptures to you. I know you don't get this. I know you're kind of going, hang on a sec. But you know, don't you know a prophet? No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Um, I'm an author. I write children's books. And believe it or not, I'm actually considered one of the premier children, Christian children's authors in Australia with the car park parable books. But of course, this is my hometown, so no one knows. But when I wrote, when I wrote those books, and I've got 30,000 books in print, um, it was interesting because Becky's mother, seeing the books, goes, Paul, an author? Paul, an author? And it took her a long time. It wasn't until she went into Kurong once and saw my books in Kurong that she thought, wow, he actually is an author. No prophet is recognized in their, their hometown. And so this is, this is Jesus. And it's a bit like we might say, Fritz is good, but he's not that good. And they were saying, Jesus is good, but he's not that good. And they get so angry, they actually take him out to the edge of the cliff and they're about to toss him overboard. In this story, Jesus begins to reveal his identity and his purpose, who he is and what he came to do. And when you look at some of the Greek words in this passage, you go, wow. So the the yellow words are the Greek and they're very bad um, translation, so it's easier for you. The spirit of the Lord is on me, the Greek ego. Spirit of, it's going to pump up his ego, isn't it? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The Greek is he has Christ, he's Christed me. That's why he's Jesus Christ. He has Christed me to preach euangelion. It's a big word. It's the word we get angel from, euangelion, angels. And we also get the word evangelism, euangelion. We also get the word gospel and good news, all from that word, euangelion. Because he has given, he, he has anointed me to preach an angelic message. Angels are euangelions because they're messengers of God. An angel always comes with a message of God. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring an angelic message. Angelic messages could only be good to the poor. He has sent, he has apostled, and we are really modern day apostles. He has apostled me, sent ones. That's why we call the Disciples, apostles, because Jesus said, go, go, I send you into the world. He has apostled me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind. He has apostled me to free the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And if you know the Old Testament, that's the Jubilee. In this passage, Jesus goes from Nazareth boy to God's anointed one, Jesus the Christ, with a divine purpose to bring freedom. I had never seen how important, how central freedom was to Jesus' purpose till this week. Because we're thinking about rules for freedom, I'm going, wow, it's there right at the start. Freedom, freedom. Free the oppressed, free the prisoners. And if you know about the Jubilee, debts forgiven, slaves set free. Jesus is our Jubilee. That's That's a big call, isn't it, for Jesus to make? This is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. That's likely to give someone a big ego. (coughs) And so you can see why the people are divided and confused and and furious because the, the, the Messiah is this mystery, this divine, wonderful thing. But we know who your mum and dad are. This can't be true. And so they take him out to the edge of a cliff to throw him over. And is this first, is this Jesus' first miracle in Luke? He parts a sea of angry people and walks to freedom. Is that Luke's first miracle? Then if you read the gospel, what do we see unfold? Jesus lives out his identity. He continually connects with the Father. He says he only does and says the things that the Father does, which is a wonderful image for freedom because here's Jesus saying, I just do what my dad says and that's how you live freedom. And then he brings that freedom. Doesn't he bring it? He frees people from evil spirit, from mental and spiritual torment and suffering. He frees people from sickness and disease, leprosy, disability. He frees the oppressed, Levi, the tax collector. He helps him out from under that oppressive system. He brings truth that allows people to be free from legalism of the law. He restores people to the community. He says a number of times, this lady, she too is a daughter of Abraham. This man, he too is a son of Abraham. And of course, he brings freedom from even death as he raises people from the dead. So Jesus lives out this mission of freedom, even unto death. But of course, we know how this story is going to end. If Jesus' purpose is freedom, how does it end on the archetypal symbol of oppression. The cross is the total demoralization of a person and a populace. You get out of line and you're going to find yourself hanging on one of these things. I was just reading this week, um, this author saying, Rome was so full of, of slaves of every culture and every tribe and they said the only way we can keep them in control is to crucify them now and then to remind them of their place this was a demoralizing thing because you can you imagine my cousin is up on that cross my dad is up on that cross my son is up on that cross and they could be there for two or three days 
and I did nothing to rescue them. Because I know if I tried to rescue them, I will be up alongside them. That does things to you as a people. That's PTSD on a societal scale. The cross was there to completely shatter these people. And yet, this is Jesus' way to freedom. That's the mystery, the beauty, the paradox and the divine contradiction of Christianity. If Jesus can redeem the very symbol of tyranny and turn it into a symbol of love, peace and freedom, then he really is the Messiah. Not only that, he might very well be the son of God. And such a reversal is only possible because of the resurrection. Rome put Jesus down, but God raised him from the dead. Amen? Sin tried to bury him, but forgiveness rose him from the grave. Do you believe it? Amen. Tyranny tried to tie him down, but love lifted him up. Hallelujah. And so now Jesus has this two-pronged ministry. There is freedom in the earthly sense, from disease, from sickness, from oppression, from slavery, from prison, and that's important stuff, from climate change, from, from whatever it is, there is that part of our ministry. But more importantly, there's freedom in the eternal sphere, freedom from sin and death. Because you can be a prisoner in a cell And yet your spirit is free. But you could also be free in your body, but your spirit is in chains. Which is worse? Which is worse? Your body to be free, but your spirit in chains, or your body to be in chains, but your spirit free? Your body might be sick, but your soul is free. Meanwhile, your body could be healthy, but your soul is sick, which is worse. That's why Jesus says it's the eternal freedom that is most important. That's why God doesn't always answer our prayers for the earthly freedom. Because it's the eternal freedom that really matters. The earthly freedom is a sign pointing to the eternal freedom. The eternal freedom is what we want. So where, what is our identity and purpose? We are Redcliffe uniting. We are God's beloved children in Redcliffe where he's redeemed. And our purpose is to bring an angelic message to our community. That's our purpose, is to be this heavenly messengers of God's love. Our ministries, giving from the heart, playgroup, El Shaddai, adult fellowship, funeral catering, all the things we do are about bringing some level of earthly freedom to people to go, ah, and that's good. And we know that the community space, 
is going to take that to a whole new level, a level that we can't even dream and imagine yet. It's going to allow us to set people free from domestic violence, from uh, mental health, from all sorts of things to find that wholeness. But that's not all. We take that ministry to the next level when we add that eternal freedom. When we bring the good news of God's love, forgiveness, restoration, one on the cross of Christ to our community. So our purpose is to say we need to connect with people physically and we need to transform their lives eternally. Do you know your identity? Do you believe that you're a a child of God? And you might be saying, not me, Paul, I'm not worthy. I've got good news if you think that. The only prerequisite for becoming a child of God is admitting you're not worthy. What's Jesus' entry word? Repent. Realize, oh, I'm broken. I can't do it, Lord. He goes, great. That's who I need. I need the broken ones. I need the failures. I need those who aren't, who haven't got it together. And and I'm going to put you together. And then we'll be able to change the world. Jesus died for our sins, not to start a club for good people. He didn't say, all the good people come here and we'll change the world. It's like, no. I want all the broken and disturbed. I'm going to put you together and we'll change the world. The problem we often see as pastors is not that Jesus can't forgive anymore, but that we can't forgive ourselves. Jesus says, if you confess your sins, then I'll take them as far as the east is from the west, but we can't let go of them. If God has forgiven you, who are you to disagree with God? You're forgiven, debts set free. And so then your purpose is simply to be a part of God's angelic message to the world. In your own small way, to ask that question we keep asking, how did we do How'd we do? Did we give people a warm welcome? Did we give them a divine experience? Did we let them know they could be part of the we? And there's no better way to do that than as part of the church. But perhaps the most important question today is this one. Where do you need freedom? Maybe you need that earthly freedom. You're sick, you're in mental or spiritual torment. Maybe you're feeling left out of your family and your community. Maybe you're suffering from poverty or attacks of the evil one. Maybe it's like, Lord, I, I need something tangible and earthly right now. Jesus still heals. Jesus still binds the brokenhearted. Does he do that? Do we believe that Jesus still does these things? Jesus still heals. Is that true? Jesus still binds the brokenhearted. Maybe we need that eternal freedom. You need to get your identity right, to kneel at Jesus' cross and call him Lord, not to want to push him off a cliff. Today you can do that. Communion is to kneel at the cross. 
the body broken, the blood poured out. It's an opportunity to receive Jesus into our lives anew. We believe that when we eat this meal, Christ is present. That miracles will manifest, that healing happens, that souls will be saved. As you come and you eat, know that this is actually Jesus present to us. And just as if I can't forgive myself, Jesus' forgiveness means nothing. If we can't believe that Jesus is here, then he's pretty powerless to do anything. So as we come and gather at this table, and I invite the elders to come and gather with me, (coughs) as we come and gather at this table, know that Jesus is real, he's present, he's here, he can meet us. But friends, Jesus gathered his disciples He shared what was that Passover meal where they would have been saying, is this the year? Is this the year where these things come true? Imagine eating this meal with Jesus and thinking, this is the year. This is the day. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then Jesus, just like Jesus does, he does it in a way that you don't expect when he says, hey, this is my body broken for you. Amen.